Hello and welcome to the November 2020 edition of the Xcoders Community Podcast. I'm Jared Sorge, and this month I'm joined by Jake Saban. How are you doing, Jake? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's almost Thanksgiving, and I got a nice break in a couple of days. So Right on. Me too. That'll be good. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you, when did you find Xcoders? How did you join the group? And, and what's a little bit of your history? Yeah, so um, I, well, let's, w- let's start with the Xcoders thing first. It's an easier answer. Um, <laughs> so I got involved with Xcoders after um, I was having a casual conversation over email with uh, Brent Simmons, who was a colleague of mine at Userland uh, back in the early 2000s, the dot-com heyday. Hmm. And he, I was looking, I was working at Microsoft, but I was starting to get a little bit bored there. And I was looking for ways to kind of get into the broader community and get back to my roots uh, as a as a sort of Apple person as opposed to a Microsoft person. And he recommended <laughs> that I just start coming to some of the meetings. And I, you know, I was explaining, well, I, you know, I'm not doing any Mac development work. I don't really know anything about programming on the Mac, you know, outside of the the work that we did together at Userland. And he said, no, no, just come on down. It's a really friendly crew and you'll really like it. So I just started showing up. Um, and, you know, it was a lot of fun. I met a lot of really great people. And uh, he, Brent actually also invited me around that time to um, CocoConf down in Portland. I forget what oh, year yeah. that was. Um, and it was, I was just blown away by how welcoming the community was. And, and um, you know, Brent gave the keynote that, at that conference. And, uh, you know, his keynote basically was walk around the room and talk to people. Uh, and I was one of the people that, that he pointed out, he's like, I, you know, I might know Jake longer than almost anybody here. Uh, and it was just fantastic experience. You know, it was so different from, you know, I was working in this giant corporation. There was a lot of sort of, mm-hmm. you know, a uh, very competitive place, um, smart people, really great people, but also, you know, it's a little bit difficult to navigate. And, and this was like the diametric opposition of that, you know, and, um, yeah. so I, I immediately just really felt at home with that crew and, and started going to a lot of the, mostly, mostly the, um, the after meeting drinking get togethers, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I've made some really good friends and it's, it's been quite a while now that I've, that I've been going to those. I really miss those meetings. Me too. I think I've said that on every episode of the show since the lockdown started. Yeah, I bet. And I know I've seen probably three or four of those Brent walk around the room, room keynotes and they're, they're a lot of fun. Yep. <laughs> um, how did you end up, how did you meet Brent? Yeah. So Brent and I met online. Um, like I said, we worked together at Userland. I had, this is kind of a crazy story. So um, I have a, a past life as a failed professional rock star. Um, I was a, <laughs> I was a music major in college. I went to Reed college in Portland um, I started actually playing the bass my first year there and just got so wrapped up in, in, you know, playing in bands and stuff that I decided to switch my major to music composition and theory. And, uh, I ended up being one of only four people to graduate with a music degree that year, uh, the year I graduated, which was, well, I'll date myself, which was, uh, 1992, <laughs> Um, and I was the only one okay. who was allowed to do what they call a creative thesis. So I, I wrote a bunch of pieces and we had a performance, a recital, and then I had like an 80 page paper that I did that went along with that on, um, the relationship between the minimalist composers in the sixties and seventies and some techniques that were used in pop and rock music. Um, and hmm. then I moved to LA 
And I started auditioning down there. Um, you know, this was the era of Guns N' Roses. It was the year that um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic came out by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm -hmm. uh, the audition scene was pretty mixed, uh, but I finally found a group that I really liked that was, uh, it was called Painting Over Picasso, and we had a really diverse set of styles. They had a bunch of label interest. Uh, long story short, we exhausted our label interest in L.A., and we decided after some exploration with our manager to, uh, to see what we could do in Europe. And we, we were looking at London, possibly, but it was too expensive to live there. A lot of good record labels there, a lot of interesting music press, um, you know, really vibrant scene. But we decided to move to Amsterdam. So I was living in Amsterdam mm -hmm. from 90, September 92 until summer of 90, spring of 96. Uh, and while I was there, I bought a used Performa 640, I believe, at a swap meet. <laughs> and this thing That's had cool. on it, um, it was not my first Mac. The previous Mac that I had used was one I bought from the college. And when they were upgrading theirs and the, the computer lab there was a Mac 512, which I had upgraded to have, I believe, four megabytes of RAM and a SCSI port. <laughs> wow. I had one of the I had one of those too, but not upgraded. That was that was our our first home computer as a five twelve. Right on, yeah. I had a, I had a forty meg nine inch uh, hard drive connected to the thing. <laughs> I think That's it's so cool. I think it's still in my mom's basement. Did you ever crack it to look at the signatures on the inside of the case? I didn't. You know, uh, I didn't even know about that until many years later, and I didn't have them with me, so I'll have to do that. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, so while I was in Amsterdam, I bought this machine, and it had been previously used as a, as a web server for a small business. It had WebStar on it. It had some, uh, some system extensions that I didn't recognize. There was one called Slip, and then there was another one called TCPIP. Like, what the heck are these things? <laughs> uh, in the meantime, you know, we were trying to figure out, you know, people were just starting to use email. Um, we, I had used it in college, but it was just starting to become more mainstream. And I wanted a way mm -hmm. to communicate with my friends and my family back at home without having to, you know, call them in the middle of the night when the phone charges were, were the lowest. And international phone calls at that time were super <laughs> expensive. Um, mm -hmm. So I started exploring, you know, how can, I, how can I program this machine to wake up in the middle of the night and dial into an ISP, download my email, send all my messages, and then hang up again. And um, that, so just randomly searching around i don't remember even what how i would have found it but somehow i stumbled on i managed to download net one of the netscape betas and i stumbled on some websites that dave weiner had been building this was super early <coughs> like yes maybe winter spring 96 and um gosh i'm trying to remember now he there was there was one there was a site that he was doing that was against the CDMA that, or the the Communications Decency Act, uh, which was going <laughs> to restrict free speech on the internet. And I started following that, and I got on some mailing lists, and I got on some mailing lists about AppleScript, and was trying to learn what the heck AppleScript was all about. Um, and I kind of followed along for a while, and when when my band finally split up. Our record label dropped us, and, and we decided to just, you know, go our separate ways. I came back to the States, and I had been messing around with some of the technology that they had in Frontier for building static websites, um, which I know Dave, mm -hmm. Dave had built that stuff, and Brent was already working there. 
Um, you'll have to talk to him about his history, but uh, so I'm gonna I, have to get him back. Yeah, I kept following it, kept following it, and then I experimented a little bit with building some websites, like intranet type sites, for my mom's uh, uh, medical office, and uh, some other tools for her to you know manage lab results and things like that. Um, and on a lark, I called a friend of mine who was in a band that I had been in in college, who was out in California, and he was working for a company called Sonic Solutions. Uh, as a tester. And I said, Hey, you know, I'm looking for a job. I don't really know what to do next. Uh, do you know of anything out there on the West coast? And he said, Oh, well you should talk to us. Cause we had somebody just leave our fiscal year just ended. So we've got budget and we need another tester. And, you know, he, he knew that he knew me from college that I could, you know, I was kind of nerdy tech guy. I had messed around with Amiga <laughs> and all this stuff and had been programming since I was a little kid. And he goes, why don't you, why don't you send us your resume? And so I did put the resume together, kept calling, leaving messages for, uh, for my friend Vance Galloway's boss. Never got anything back because I had nothing on my resume that said I knew anything about computers or programming or testing or anything. <laughs> but I wasn't doing anything, so I got on a plane and I flew to San Francisco. Um, and he drove me into the office uh, one morning, one Monday morning, and said, hey, Bob, this is Jake. He's the guy I've been telling you about. You need to interview him. <laughs> <laughs> So he kind of scrambled, he disappeared, scrambled around for half an hour and got a bunch of people together. And I managed to talk my way into an entry-level software testing job. Now, what Sonic was doing, Sonic was, um, was started by some guys who spun out of Lucas, who had worked on the Edit Droid. And what the Edit Droid was, was it was a digital audio editing system that was one of the first ones that you could actually see the audio waveforms on a screen and manipulate them on the computer. Oh, wow. There was a whole field called nonlinear digital editing, um, which nobody talks about anymore because now it's just editing because everyone's doing it. Yeah. But at the time, uh, there were almost no digital video. There was almost no digital video and no video editing. Um, and the audio system that they built for Lucas was primarily used for doing sound effects, but they wanted to get into, um, you know, editing music, editing uh, all of the different kinds of parts of soundtracks for film and television. Uh, and so they built the system. It had been around, I think, already seven or eight years at that point. But um, if you if you ever bought any CDs in the 90s, they probably from a big, you know, all the big record label CDs were mastered using Sonic Solutions stuff. It was called Sonic cool. Studio. Uh, so I started there, and I realized about three or four months in that I was incredibly getting started, starting to get incredibly bored doing this same testing over and over and over again manually, mind you. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so I realized that, uh, hey, I could use Frontier. If I could get them to put some Apple event hooks into these apps, I could use Frontier <laughs> to automate a lot of the testing. Um, so I managed to managed to talk the engineers into into building this into the um, the recording system, and then later on we branched into DVD, and they they continued the thread there. Um, but I managed to automate my way out of my job, um, and <laughs> I didn't really ask permission. Um, one Wednesday morning, my my manager there uh, came up to my desk, and he's like, "Well, how's the weekly tests going?" And I was like, "Oh, you didn't see my email? I already finished." He goes, "What do you mean you finished? How'd you finish it in three days?" Um, so I showed him what I'd been working on and, uh, they quickly moved me over into a more technical position. Eventually ended up, I ended up building a, a build automation system, uh, sort of, you know, a very primitive version of what we call CICD now. Um, mm -hmm. 
and they used it for three years after I left. Uh, meantime, um, the, 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 the web was going crazy. Um, and I had been on the side kind of maintaining a personal website. Um, they were called online journals at the time. Nobody had come up with the term blog or weblog. <laughs> uh, and I had built the CMS myself and I, out of the blue one day, I get this email from, um, from a guy who worked for Mac publishing. Uh, and he was like, Hey, what are you doing? Commuting all the way up to Novato. Why don't you come work downtown for us and you can help us build the Mac world website. And I, at first I was hmm. like, this is crazy. I've never had somebody solicit me for a job over the internet on a cold, you know, cold email like that. But on a lark, I wrote him back and, and he said, well, you know, what do you make and what do you need to make? And I kind of ran up, you know, ran the calculation of like, well, what do I think my stock, stock options might be worth if we did an IPO in a couple of years? And here's what my salary is. And so I gave him a number and he's like, I think we can make that work. And two weeks later, I was working for Macworld. That's so cool. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Um, and they were using wow. um, they were using some of the early user land web tech to actually build their static sites. So they had they had a small crew of content people who would take the you know the content from the writing staff and then format it into a way that um, I believe it was Clay Basket was the code name for the project at Userland in a way that uh, that that system could actually pump out the static pages and then they would be FTP'd up to their Apache server which was sitting in a cabinet in, in the building at 401 Howard. <laughs> and we, you know, they had, we had a search engine that we had implemented on top of userland stuff that was running their CGI system behind Apache. It was pretty primitive. I think Brent was involved in some of the implementation of that. Um, I don't have the mm -hmm. whole backstory there, but what had happened was um, shortly before I got to Macworld, they had been acquired by IDG publishing and uh, IDG's oh, yeah. management came in and they wanted to change some stuff pretty, pretty radically. Uh, and, you know, Macworld and Macweek was also owned by the same group, um, had this sort of irreverence to the way that they did their reporting and they, they didn't pull any punches, you know, they would, they would write what they really felt. And, um, IDG wanted to have a closer relationship with some of the companies that were advertisers. And so they wanted to tone it down and there was a revolt among the editorial staff. Uh, a bunch of people mm. quit. Um, the managing editor quit his acting managing editor replacement quit. A bunch of the writers quit. <clears throat> so, uh, I, it wasn't clear to me whether that, whether Macworld would continue to be around, you know, at the time Apple was not doing well in the marketplace. I think their market cap was about a hundred million. Yeah. It was towards the like Apple's hundred days from bankruptcy kind of, kind of era, like 96 or so. Exactly. Yeah. That was, yeah. I mean, it had been ongoing for a long time. So 96, 97 were really dark. Um, but this was, this was more around the time frame that there were multiple failed attempts at building a new operating system. Um, you know, mm -hmm. Microsoft was just totally dominating everything and excuse me. And the internet was getting big, but it was not clear what part Apple was really going to play in the internet. Um, I'm trying to remember now, I think when I first joined, when I first joined Macworld, that would have been early 99. When I first joined them, uh, the most popular browser on the Mac was uh, Microsoft Internet Explorer 4.0. <laughs> it was a great browser, actually. Um, they did a fantastic job with it. Uh, 
anyway, back on track. So, so I decided to, you know, kind of put some feelers out. I did, a, I talked to some headhunters and I did some really terrible on-sites with, you know, companies that had, you know, Hey, I'm a 26 year old nerd and someone just gave me $20 million and I have no business model and no partners and no product, but you know, Hey, let's spend the money. <laughs> And that was, that was disheartening. I feel like it's still the attitude amongst a lot of startups nowadays. It's a lot better now than it was then, believe me. Um, the, the VCs, you know, however much I may dislike the model, um, they have a much better handle on managing risk than they used to. You know, it really was the Wild mm. West. Um, and, it, you know, honestly, it wasn't that different from auditioning for bands in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You know, really young people, really big aspirations and no plan. Right. <laughs> but so again, on a whim, I emailed Dave and uh, and I was like, hey, Dave Weiner, I don't I don't know if you know me, but, you know, I'm this guy. I've been working on your, you know, working in your platform for a few years now. And I work at Macworld and I was wondering if you had any job openings. And he goes, I don't know. Talk to this guy. And that was how I met Brent. Oh, nice. So we had a couple conversations and, uh, you know, we came up with a, a, an idea to. I've forgotten now even what it was, some prototyping project. And I wrote a little bit of code and, you know, sent it over. And um, many years later, actually, just a couple of years ago, I, I asked Brent, I was like, why did you guys hire me? He goes, I don't know. You seem nice and smart and like you'd probably get some good stuff done. So I told Dave we should hire you. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea at the time. Right. So, you know, here I was working at Macworld. I mean, you know, super, super famous publication in the tech industry. and I thought usually, uh, it's gotta be, you know, like Sonic solutions. Maybe it's like 30 people or 50 people or a hundred people. I think Sonic, when I left mm -hmm. was about 75 people. Uh, but it wasn't, it was Dave Weiner and Brent Simmons and Andre Radke and Bob Bierman. And that was it. <laughs> wow. But, uh, yeah. So Bob drove up to San Francisco from, uh, I've forgotten where he was, this was somewhere down on the peninsula mountain view, maybe. Drove up, mm -hmm. uh, handed me an offer letter, and uh, my mom was visiting at the time, and I showed it to her, and I was like, do you think I should take it? And she said, I don't know. It's your decision. So I did. <laughs> oh, man, that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah so, um, and I had, I had still not met Brent or anybody else. I had never met Dave in person. A um, couple of weeks after I started, uh, maybe it was right when I started, um, there, was a, there was a meeting at Dave's place in... Um, uh, I've forgotten where it was now, um, near Stanford. There was a meeting at Dave's house. Brent had flown down from Seattle, and he was staying there for a couple of weeks, I guess. Andre was in from, uh, he was based in Germany. But he was in from Germany, and we were trying to figure out what was coming next. And uh, this was right around the beginnings of RSS. Um, there was still debate over what formats were going to win. There was, you know, the RDF-based <laughs> format. There was RSS 0. I don't know, 0 0.1 and 9.1, I think, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, there was a scripting news format, um, which eventually some of the elements from the scripting news format ended up becoming parts of you know, what we know as the simpler non-RDF-based version of RSS, now RSS 2.0. Um, hmm. There was a service that Userland had just launched right before I joined called uh, my.userland.com which was mm -hmm. aggregating every feed that we could find. Uh, it had a public submission form where you could submit your feed and then it would provide a sort of river of news style role of all the feeds. Um, and we were doing work with Yahoo. We were doing work with some other, some other companies. 
uh, and soap was being in the news. Um, the soap 1.1 spec was being written. Uh, Dave was one of the contributors to that, but there were a bunch of big companies involved. Uh, so yeah, during my time at userland, I worked on, I worked on some features for Manila. Um, I was the main developer on radio userland for most of the time I was there. Uh, and I worked on a bunch of soap interoperability stuff, um, with, you know, IBM and HP and Microsoft. And there were some small players in there too. Simon Fell, I think had a Perl stack and he was at, um, he was at Salesforce for a long time, may still be there. Um, but yeah, it was just a solo project for him. And there were, there were a lot of other, it was a very, a lot of indie developers in that community. And it was a really, really exciting time to be working on that stuff. That's really cool. And RSS seems to have done, done well for Brent. So he's, uh, yeah, true enough. Um, he's had some good success there. Yeah. And podcasting is enormous. I mean, mm-hmm. who, you know, who would have thought, <laughs> <laughs> But I remember, um, it's funny, so I, I, left, uh, I left Userland in 2006. Um, I won't go into, there, was a, there were a lot of changes over the period between about 2003 and 2006, which are uh, documented variously inaccurately uh, in lots of places. But <laughs> um, from my perspective, I think kind of what happened was that, you know, we, we, didn't have, we didn't have the financial backing that we needed to really be competitive. Uh, mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, we got, we got some really fierce competition on the consumer or, you know, sort of indie side from free products, including movable type and later on WordPress. Um, Mm -hmm. and we had some, we had some technical issues that made it difficult for us to move wholeheartedly into the server space. Mm, Yeah. And we just didn't have the staff or the funding to be able to solve those problems, which is really a shame because it was really interesting, great tech, I think. Anyway, um, I left in 96 and then uh, went to Microsoft, um, switched from being a developer to a program manager when I went there. And uh, I came back to San Francisco to go to a friend's wedding about six months after I started. And there was a billboard from AT&T saying that you could listen to podcasts on your mobile phone. And that was when I knew (laughs) that eventually it was going to turn into something. (laughs) Weirdly, it took like another 10 years before it did. Yeah. So let's fast forward a a little bit. Uh, what are you up to today? So uh, recently, I well, it's about seven months ago now, um, I started working at Amazon Music. Uh, I'm a mm-hmm. senior technical program manager. Um, I work on uh, the, the stuff in the music system that deals with responding to voice commands. Um, so if you're, oh, asking, cool. if you're asking Alexa to play some music uh, and your Amazon Music is your music provider, then that's, that's my team. Mm-hmm. Nice. How how's it gone so far? Oh wow. It's uh it's been quite a ride. There the there's a huge amount of technology. Uh it's a pretty big group. Um, but it's a it's a really great team. Uh I couldn't have asked for a better place to land inside Amazon, I think. Um, you know, it goes mm-hmm. way back. You know, music and I obviously go way back. Um so, you know, having being able to, you know, to kind of merge those two interests together yet again is has been really fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then you landed there after being at a smaller company, right? Locally. Yeah. Um, so I was at I was at one of the one of the Seattle unicorns for a little while. Um, I was at Rover.com. Uh, I got in there. Um, I basically barged my way in there as well. I had a couple of friends that I had worked with <laughs> in consulting, 
um, who had who had left and gone to various places. Um, uh, Jeff Pato was one of the people I worked with at L4 Digital, um, and he was there mm-hmm. working on their iOS app. Uh, so I kind of you know pinged him, got a little bit of the backstory. You know, what's it like there? What's the culture like? Um, and then uh, you know help, he helped me get a referral in for a listing that they had for uh, TPM to work on their backend APIs. Um, and uh, I had been looking for for to get out of consulting and back into a product team for a while, but this was the first time that um, that I'd really found an opportunity that really resonated with me. Rover's a great company, fantastic culture there, um, and a really mm-hmm. interesting product. Um, uh, you know, I was I was privileged to have been there for a little while, uh, but unfortunately, when COVID hit, um, it hit the company really hard, and and they were forced to downsize. And you know, one of the things that you consider as a as a leader when you're when you have to downsize is how long have people been here? And unfortunately, I hadn't been there very long, so they had to let me go. Yeah, that sucks. I'm sorry about that. I was I was a victim of that lift as well. Yeah, it really was too bad. Um, but you know, uh, shout out to Phil Kimmy, who was my manager there. He's um, one of the one of the longest time people. Um, he he referred me to his cousin actually, who was a, a product manager in Amazon Music, and that was how I got in the door here. So, um, oh cool. So you know what comes around goes around. I'm I've been trying to help as many people <laughs> as I know who who were affected by by COVID layoffs to try and help them land in good spots. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're able to land on your feet, man. That's really cool. Yeah. It was about six, it was about six weeks, the the total time from the layoff until I, until I got an offer, which was incredibly fast. That's pretty good. That. Yeah. Um, I mean the day after I heard about the layoffs, I was, you know, my full-time job was to find a job because I knew that there was going to be a lot of competition with what was going on with COVID, but, um, I consider yep. myself to be incredibly lucky. So you were in consulting for a while. How long, how long were you in, in the consulting game? Uh, it was about six or seven years. Um, again, you know, so back at Microsoft, I was trying to, trying to find what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something new. Um, I'd been in the same product group for the whole time I was there. It was about six years from 2006 to 2012. And, uh, you know, mobile was getting really big. The web was changing really fast. And Microsoft at the time, or at least the group that I was in, was it was just not important for us to think about what was happening in those places. And I, I had uh, already been hanging out at Xcoders. I had gone to the Cocoa Conf uh, down in Portland, and I mm-hmm. just really knew I wanted to change something. So um, the first thing I did was I, I ended up landing a kind of a, a, an interim gig. Uh, there was a company based in Bellevue called Solutions IQ that was a you know consulting agency that was doing some work with Hitachi Data Systems. Uh, and they were mostly doing sort of staff og style um, consulting. So, you know, they would have people on their own payroll, but then they would sort of farm them out to other companies. That's, you know, mm-hmm. one of the kind of, there's there's a project-based model, and then there's a staff og style model for agencies. And those are the two main ones. Um, they So they got me this gig at uh, Hitachi Data Systems, uh, which is, uh, was, I think they're, they've rebranded now. They're, they're something else. Um, they have a new name and they've totally reorged, but they were based down in Santa Clara, but they had a small satellite office in Bellevue that was doing work on a new product that would integrate with VMware and help you to manage, uh, they called it uh, converged private, private cloud infrastructure. 
Um, <laughs> so basically it was, you know, uh, storage blocks and compute blocks like blade servers and, uh, um, okay. and, uh, uh, rack mounted, you know, network, high speed network switches, uh, mainly Cisco, but brocade also. Uh, and then they were, the VMware would manage, um, would manage the compute, but then Hitachi has a hardware business. And so they were trying to figure out ways that they could build systems that would make it easier to integrate and have, uh, less sort of operational overhead because you, you know, traditionally in these big data systems, private data systems, you have a storage expert or a storage expert team, and then you'd have compute experts and you have networking experts. And so if you needed to stand up a new set of VMs for some big service, you had to go to three or four different teams and request the hardware resources get allocated and then find the engineers to configure them. And it would take weeks. And what mm-hmm. Hitachi wanted to do was to build software that would uh, sit on top of all these systems and kind of automate them to make them all work together. So I could say, okay, well, I need, I need a stack that has, you know, this much compute and this much dedicated storage, and I need to have failovers to another data system for high availability, and I need to have all the switching get automatically configured. Uh, and then on top of that, there was this concept of a template. All of this stuff is, you know, you see it in Azure and AWS now. There's templates for everything. Um, you know, there's a lot of cookie cutters out there. Uh, but at the time, that stuff was still pretty new. And Hitachi was trying to figure out how to be competitive in that space to use the software to help leverage hardware sales. So I stayed, I, I learned more than I ever wanted to know about converged virtual cloud infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> Was not uh, was not a product space I knew much about. I, it was valuable learning, but not super exciting for me because I'm I'm much more of a you know can I touch it kind of person. Um, sure. So while I was there, uh, I had been continuing again to go to Xcoders. Uh, I decided after having been pushed a little bit by Chris Parrish and Doug Russell and uh, a few other people to go do the continuing education course in iOS and Mac development at UW. Oh yeah. Even though I had no, <laughs> I had no qualifications. I had no computing degree. <laughs> I had, you know, a lot of experience, but not very relevant experience. Anyway, uh, I did fine. It was good. Again, really good learning. Um, I was thinking about maybe starting an indie iOS app, uh, but you know, didn't have a lot of time and wasn't the, the big, the big, thing for me i think when i saw that that google was going to kill reader i knew that there were going to be opportunities there so i did some research to see what the competitive landscape was going to be like and there were already six or seven different services i decided that you know as one person i you know with a family (laughs) i didn't have the the gumption to compete in that space they all seemed to pop up like day one when reader went away too it was amazing yeah yeah definitely um a lot of them are still around which i think is pretty fascinating actually it's i'm glad that the market has gotten you know diversified a bit it still does not have however much however much one might dislike what google did to the rss space with reader you know reader itself i think provided an opportunity for a lot of non-technical people to to consume rss uh, a very visible Mm -hmm. place to do it and i think it's it's a lot more scattered now but yeah, I, I haven't been following the space much in the last few years. I'm a happy Feedbin customer. Oh yeah, right on. Yeah, so I was in Hitachi and uh, I did the did the continuing education course with UW, and then I saw that Black Pixel, um, which at the time was a well known sort of 
boutique, bespoke um, iOS design and development shop uh, based here in Seattle, that they were starting to hire project managers. Uh, and that's what I'd been doing, you know, at Solutions IQ was project management. And program management has project management as an aspect of that. If anybody's curious, I would be happy to talk about the distinctions, but it's a little bit arcane. So I, so I, uh, you know, put my resume together, uh, submitted an application online, and then um, I asked Brent Simmons to introduce me to Daniel Pasco, who was the CEO there, uh, over email. And I said, hey, Dan, um, you know, I just sent my resume. I'm really, really excited to talk to you folks about this opportunity. Um, you know, uh, please let me know if you can get me in. They got me in for an interview, um, and uh, I got an offer a couple of days later, and I was the second project manager that they had ever hired. Nice. Yeah, so we worked on a bunch of different stuff. Um, you know, if, if Black Pixel still existed in its original form, I probably couldn't talk about any of them. But um, uh, <laughs> there, was a, there was a joke, a story. I don't know if it was true or not, but the story was that um, Dan used to go out on pitches and that he, you know, he'd be talking to some exec somewhere and um, he would say, okay, how many of you have iPhones? And, you know, some iPhones would pop out onto the table. And now how many of you, um, uh, or no, it's how many of you have iPhones? And then he would say, I'll bet all of you 500 bucks that at least one of the phones in this room is running an app that we built. <laughs> and we did, you know, we did works with some pretty top tier um, uh, companies, you know, very, very well-known brands. Uh, it's mm-hmm. difficult work. Um, we tried to, as much as we could, focus on the, the sort of more project-based engagements where, you know, we would get a spec and maybe some designs um, and then do all of the, you know, the visual design and uh, implementation work ourselves and manage those projects internally. And we tried to maintain as much flexibility as we could, you know, in terms of um, working with our partners to help them improve the user experience and help them align better with, um, with Apple's, uh, you know, human interface guidelines and, um, not just take the website and throw it onto the phone. And it was, you know, we, we, for, for some time there, it went really well. Um, it was a difficult place to be in. And there were some market shifts, I think that we, we really struggled with around the time that I left. Um, you know, everything very suddenly, a lot of development, a lot of project work, um, you know, consulting engagements shifted from mobile to web. Mm. And it started started just slowly, just a little bit of a hint. And then there was a big push for a while for, okay, well, why are we spending so much money building native apps when we could build, you know, mobile websites instead? And then we could make a wrapper and have our mobile website be a wrapper app. There's still a lot of these around. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, you know, seesawed back and forth a few times over the last few years. Yeah, totally. So as a consultant or or in the consulting industry a bit, is there any advice you give for people who want to get into consulting, either maybe um, as part of an agency or if they want to go about it themselves? Yeah, I think it really depends on what role you're in, right? Um, I'm imagining that most of the listeners of this podcast are probably engineers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the engineers that do the best um, are folks who are careful, don't write bugs, uh, folks who document their code well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, unit tests are fantastic as long as you have the time and the budget to build them. You know, any kind of test automation you can do is fantastic. Again, as long as you have the time mm-hmm. and the budget to build them. I think many times the 
project managers that work in agency contexts don't have a lot of technical capability. So learning how to talk to product and project managers and ideally learning how to talk and work with, with your clients um, to help them to land solutions that work for their customers, that work really well for their customers without, you know, spending too much time and money, right? Um, you know, yeah. the, your customer is, as a consultant, your customer is whoever's cutting you checks, right? Right. But they're not going to come back to you unless you do a job that makes them successful with their customer. And so if you can f- develop a relationship that gives you enough freedom and flexibility to try and advise and guide people um, as you're doing the work, then you're going to be more successful at building a reputation of being someone who's really high, really valuable to work with, right? Mm-hmm. A good agency will have, you know, business development people and project managers um, who can help with those relationships. But it's really important, I think, for engineers to learn to talk to non-technical people if you can. It, it opens up a lot of doors for you in your career if you can uh, kind of stretch a little bit in space. That's something I struggle a lot with just at home to make my wife interested in what I have to say because <laughs> her eyes glaze <laughs> over so quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to not. Um, you know, another tendency I think that uh, that I see in much more in junior engineers is, um, you know, a product manager will come with a feature idea and maybe some sketches of some, you know, user flows or um, some, you know, screen designs or whatever. And you immediately jump to solutions, right? Your first instinct is to go, okay, well, how am I going to, what's the architecture look like? What languages am I going to program it in? What's the backend look like? What's the API look like? What data stores do I need? What's the schema, et cetera, et cetera, right? <laughs> um, but you've already kind of missed the boat at that point. Um, if you're jumping straight into solutions, you're assuming that the design that you've gotten is the right design. And mm. I think that the challenge overall working with teams and with lots of different roles is to figure out um, how to get that communication to be fluid enough that you can work together as a team and mutually advise each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And it really is about relationship building. And I I know I I sound like a program project product manager here because I am, (laughs) Um, but those skills play across all these different roles. They really do. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel incredibly seen right now because I'm, I definitely start in the like, how am I going to build this kind of mindset without thinking about like, what is the best thing to do for whoever the customer is? And I have to constantly remind myself that. Yeah, I do too. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's very easy to fall into that as a former developer. You know, I spent, if, if I add up all the years, you know, starting from when I started hacking on Apple twos, I spent 25 or 30 years programming stuff. So it's really mm-hmm. easy for me to do that too. You know, I haven't written any production code in 15 years now, but, uh, um, you know, I still think in terms of architectures and APIs and data stores before, you know, I mm-hmm. have to stop myself from doing that um, and, you know, kind of go, okay, well, how can I solve a small piece of this problem in a way that a customer can touch it and get some feedback? Yeah. And that I think is one thing that I've learned from, from agile development, which is sort of, you know, comes out of the Silicon Valley startup model that I think is really valuable. And, I, and you know, user-led was doing it before anybody else that I had talked to was doing it. You know, how do you, how do you do experiments? How do you get customer feedback as early as you possibly can? Uh, whether if you're a mm-hmm. consultant, whether that customer is, you know, your stakeholder who is the business person over on, you know, the company that's hired you or whether you can, maybe you can convince them to let some beta users touch the thing. Yeah. You know, or ideally you're working with a company that 
that eats their own dog food and uses their own products. Yeah, totally. Well, uh, thank you so much for hopping on the show this month. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we went a little long. I'm sure I could talk for another half an hour. But, uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for the invite. Um, this is, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you know this, but this is the first podcast interview that I've done. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, You're a natural. Oh, uh, thanks. I, well, I've listened to a ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I love to talk about myself, as we all do. So. <laughs> well, thanks again for hopping on. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you next month.